Romans 11, Romans chapter 11 for the rest of us this morning. Kids are walking out. I was, I was coming back in for that last song. I'd stepped out, and my dad reminded me uh, what happened on Wednesday night. And uh, Wednesday night, one of the little girls that was here, she comes in on our bus, and um, I don't know. We got done praying or something, and we're having a good time on Wednesday, and we dismissed all the kids. Or everybody said like, "Amen." You know, it was like one of those things. Everybody said, "Amen," and she's walking out, and she's like, "It's not amen. There's lots of men," she said. So. It was pretty, I, th- I think she knew what she was doing. I don't think that was a, an epiphany moment for her, but it was, that was pretty good. So praise the Lord. But that one particular young lady we've been praying for, that she would be able to attend and keep attending. And there's some complications. So just I'd appreciate you to continue praying for the boys and girls that we pick up on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights that uh, God would just keep working in their hearts. So we've... Uh, it's been neat to see God reestablish and build back up our bus ministry. We give him praise and glory for that. All right, well, this morning, Romans 11, we really, um, I know that there's still several chapters left in the book of Romans, uh, and it's been about since the spring that we've been going verse by verse through Romans, so I know that there's several chapters left, but I almost feel like we have come to a conclusion because there are several major themes in the book of Romans. And if you remember how we've studied through it together, the first few chapters were all about really five chapters explaining that we are justified by faith. And it explained how a person could be made right with God. There's a lot of really deep theology and truth there and, and doctrine explaining the foundations of the Christian faith. And then in chapters 6 and 7 and into chapter 8, it talked about how we're sanctified. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, where we've, what we've just come through, it's explained in a, in a very grand and cosmic sense, it's explained what God's plan is for all of the nations of the world. And so if you've been kind of paying attention as we track through this, it's, it's a pretty magnificent narrative that we've studied. And what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Romans is the rest of the book is going to be very, very practical. It's going to explain, well, now based on what you know about your Christian faith, chapters 12 through 16 are going to talk about now how you can live out your Christian faith. So it's almost like uh, it's going to be a whole brand new sermon series. It really is based on these concluding chapters of the book of Romans. So if chapters 1 through 11 are all theology, chapters 12 through 16 are all practical Christian living. And that's interesting, because as you study the New Testament, as you look at especially the epistles, you're always going to find that. You're going to find that more often than not, the apostles begin with an instruction of what we know, or what we are to know about God about who he is and about who we are. And then they go to how we should live. Now, those two things really need to be linked together. 
a lot of times people want to, they, they fall in either category. They want to go straight to, all right, well, tell me how to live. Tell me what to do. Well, that can result in just a religious, legalistic type of Christianity. But then other times people want to just study the truths and then not do anything about it in their lives. You find the scripture does both. And so we're at a transition point in the book. But what's really interesting is the verses that we come to today. So as he concludes his theological section of the book, you'll notice these just four verses beginning in verse number 33 and right down through verse number 36. And if you would, I'd like you to read these out loud with me as we begin the message today. Romans 11, 33 through 36, and begin. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding. Pause for a second. Go ahead, back me up one verse to verse 33. Notice it begins with an exclamatory word. And in the middle, there's another exclamatory word. So let's read it, giving Adam left to go be with the kids. But based on how Adam presented that uh, Operation Christmas Child box, right, with that enthusiasm, let's try this, giving, do, you're with me, Trav, I see you, so absolutely. Let's try it with the do enthusiasm in that it's not often, not only are there two exclamatory words in the verse, but there are two, what else? Did you notice? Two exclamation points. Two exclamation points. Ready? On three, we're going to try this again. Now, I'm a little tired this morning. I'm just getting over something, so you're going to have to help me out. All right? Some of you look like you've had a week kind of like mine, so the other half of the room, you're going to have to help us out this morning. All right, on three, we're going to do this verse again. One, two, three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That was great. And now verse number 34. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him? Again, pause. Back me up, bud. Thank you. First verse, the punctuation was what? Exclamation. Second two verses, the punctuation is question marks. And now we finish with verse number, are we on 35? Do we read verse 35 yet? Yeah. Now we finish with verse 36, a verse of calm assurance and confidence. Begin. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is a passage of doxology. Doxology. It's a period. You are correct. We went for, and that, how fitting. Exclamation, question marks, and period. Our confidence in who God is. The message this morning, of him, through him, and to him. This is a, this conclusion of this section of Romans is really a doxology which is just a fancy way to say it's a hymn of praise. The word, uh, how many of you are familiar with that word doxology? You've heard that before. Most often, if I were to say doxology, you would think of, in English, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. 
praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Doxology is a hymn of praise. It comes from the Greek doxa, which is glory. It is to give him the glory. And that's what Paul does. And I want us to understand something, and, and that is this. Sound doctrine and sound theology should always move us into doxology. Theology should always move us into doxology. What we know about God, and I want especially the young people, the children and teenagers that are here, you know, it's very, it would be very easy for you to come to the church or Sunday school or youth group. It would be easy for you to just, you're learning facts, you're learning information, you're receiving data, as they say. But the, but the fact is this, as we receive this, we're not learning, we're, we're not accumulating knowledge for knowledge's sake. We're learning about the Creator, and all of it is supposed to direct our hearts and our minds and our worship to God, to who and to who He is. It's um, one of the Sunday school teachers was sharing a little bit about how they're at the, they have students that are at that age where they say they begin the story, and the child has, and I remember this from teaching junior church, you start telling the story, and the boys and girls, one of the first things they say is, oh, I know this one, I know this one. And, you know, because to them, and at that age, it's about learning the story. And in that case, in that class, the teacher was, was saying how she started asking them questions to see, well, instead of just giving them about the story or the, or the passage, how is this going to affect you? How is it going to change you? So, but today I'm a little bit different, and that is this. Instead of listening to the scripture and saying, okay, so justified by faith, sanctified by faith, uh, God's plan of election that we read about, all this stuff. Okay, I've heard that one. I know that one. Paul, who wrote it down, he gets to the end of it, and he just bursts out in song. And a lot of people believe that this possibly could have been one of the first hymns that the church would sing as they would gather. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And we'll, we'll read the rest of it as we go through again. So let me give you three observations from these verses. First of all, number one, the first stanza of the hymn, the first stanza of the song, if you will, it is all about our magnificent God. Our magnificent God. The, the Gettys have a hymn, Magnificent, Marvelous, Matchless. And it's just a, I love that, I love that hymn. But this, if you look at this, he's almost at a loss for words. And so we think about the magnificence of God in verse number 33, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And exclamatory words, they serve, they serve to make us feel what we cannot always explain. Where we, we step back in wonder and awe, and he, Paul just stop, starts and he says, Oh, oh, let this sink in. Let this sink in. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You're going to see here there's three themes to his magnificence. Three themes to his magnificence. The depth of his wisdom, his knowledge, his wisdom and knowledge, then his judgments, and then the ways of the Lord. Okay, so, so notice this first of all. Indescribable wisdom. 
that he has indescribable wisdom. The way he describes the wisdom of God is, oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, a couple of things about this. As we think about the wisdom of God, I'd have you notice this, that as you think about God's wisdom, what will come to mind? What is it, what is it that come, comes to mind? And for me, how is the wisdom of God revealed? Well, we know that God's wisdom, first of all, is revealed in the natural world around us. As you discover the intricacies and the complexities of just creation, considering all, even the human body or considering the, uh, the universe, and I don't know how many of you have been following this new, what's the name of this new telescope that they've put up there? What, somebody must know what that is. You, Patrick, well, we were talking about it, right? We were talking about it. You forgot the name of it. Anybody know that they've seen, what is it called? Sam, you know what it's called? What is it? I can't hear you. The web, right? So it's the web telescope. And they say it's, it's going deeper into our, deeper into the galaxy and beyond than we have ever seen before. The Bible also says that the heavens declare the glory of God, don't they? Doesn't it? Well, if you've studied it, the headlines that were coming, coming out of the images from the web telescope, the headlines that have been coming out have said things like this, new images causing cosmologists to question Big Bang, Big Bang cosmology. It's like, well, some of us have been questioning Big Bang cosmology for an awful long time. And now they haven't come to any light bulb moment where they have completely you know, renounced their positions, but the point is this, we know a fraction not of what there is to know. We know a fraction of what we think we know as human beings. And at, compared to the wisdom of God, he says God's wisdom, God's knowledge is indescribable. It is naturally revealed. But it is not only naturally revealed. It's not just, and by the way, that's why you will never find a culture up until this day and age and still It'd be hard-pressed. I don't believe that this, has, this is even mainstream in the culture. You'll never find a culture in, in the history of mankind that has denied the existence of deity. Now, they haven't always got it right, but you'll never find a culture that says there is no creator. There is no God. You will never find that. Why? Because God has baked his wisdom into the very universe, the natural world and worlds around us. So God's indescribable wisdom and knowledge is naturally revealed. But I don't think that's really what Paul is speaking of here. I think Paul is referring to not the natural revelation, but the special revelation. The fact that God has revealed himself not just in the world, but God has revealed himself in his word. That God has revealed himself in his word. Think about what just happened. He has spent 11 chapters explaining some of the, the deep mysteries of the Godhead. He's taken the last 11 chapters to explain what God's plan is for the nations. God's saving, redemptive plan. He's taken time to unpack all of that. And as he looks at it, he says, wow. God has such wisdom, but not just his wisdom, his knowledge, but he, that not only is God's wisdom and knowledge indescribable, 
but he says that God's justice is incomprehensible. Look at verse number 33 again. <clears throat> he says that his wisdom and knowledge, he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. But then how does he describe the judgments or the justice of God? He describes them as what? Unsearchable. Unsearchable. There is no justice like the justice of our God. Are there, is there any true and perfect justice in this world? There's none. Do not people crave justice? When a wrong has been done, they expect it to be righted. Let me give you an example. Let, let me give you an example. And, I, and, I, and I'm probably not going to explain this perfectly, so please give me a little bit of, give me a little bit of liberty and, and be gracious with me how I explain this. But I just want to give you an example. Even in our own culture, in our own country, what is the, you could probably just name it off the top of your head, what is the great injustice of the whole American experience? What is it? I hear somebody starting to get afraid to say it. What has it been? Slavery. Have we ever figured out how to make justice of that? We're still talking about it today. It's still an issue today. Why? Because there are some injustices that just can never be made right. They are so wrong. They are so, they are so unjust. Somebody commits a crime. Somebody commits a murder. Well, justice of the Bible and justice in many states in the United States, justice for that crime is capital punishment. Is that perfect justice for the crime that has been done? Not at all. Not at all. If you consider the great injustices of history, how can we as human beings make any of these things right? We can try. We can reflect some of the justice of God. But can we, but can we enact perfect justice? No. The fact is, no, we cannot. But when Paul reads about Romans, when Paul writes what God has revealed to him, and he's talking about the, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he talks about God's plan for the ages, he stops. And he says, God, you have a plan to make this all right in the end. And it's in a way that human beings, we are incapable of understanding how God can make this happen. But he says his judgments, his justice is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. Indescribable wisdom. Incomprehensible justice. The third thing that he speaks about God and his magnificence is this. And this one actually is personally my favorite. And that is an inexplicable providence. An inexplicable providence. Look at the last statement in verse 33. His ways are past finding out. His ways are past finding out. You see, God has a plan. God has a path. Did you know that God has a plan and a path, not just for the nations in the world, but God has a plan and a path for every single life. I mean, we read a few weeks ago in Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for what? 
for good. To them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That means that in, in some way, God is able, in, a, in, a, in an inexplicable way, God is able to even, to even take the bad things that happen in our lives to redirect them in a way that you and I can still experience his good and his best for our lives. That's called providence, that his hand is involved in every step of the way. But his providence goes even beyond, his providence goes even beyond what he does for the life of the believer. Did you know that God's providence is still at play in the, through the lives of those who even reject God? I mean, there's one promise that says that God's way will be accomplished, God's good will be accomplished in all things and for those of us who love God. But God, in some sovereign, undescribable way, is able to take the actions of wicked men and wicked women who are trying to go against him, who are trying to thwart his plan, and still work them for his good and for his ultimate glory. I think one of the, a great example of this, and we may look, at, if we have time, we'll look at some scripture from this book. One of the most uh, interesting ways is through the life of the man Job in, that you read about in the Old Testament. And Satan came to God and he said, we're going to get Job way off track. And I've got a plan. I've got a new, I, I, I want to bring this in. And God took all of the things that Satan wanted to bring into Job's life and he turned them for good and for his glory. Not just that, but you'll read about, I've been reading just a, a little bit this past week in the book of Daniel. How many of you remember who the king in the book of Daniel was? What was his name? Anybody, the first one? It's a tricky one. Anybody know it? A little Bible quiz trivia this morning. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's the king. Nebuchadnezzar, he had no love for God. Nothing at all. But the Bible teaches that God took even a king who was opposed to him and opposed to his plan and he used that king in the nation of Israel. That's the providence of God. How can we explain these ways? Who could calculate or come up with a plan? Paul just stops and he worships and he says, Oh, oh, the depth. How unsearchable. His ways are past finding out. This reminds me of Isaiah. I think we can put this on the screen. Isaiah 40 and 12 through 18. Do you have Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 12? Who, speaking of God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. I've always imagined, have you ever seen the Somebody with a table, maybe in their basement with their train sets set up on the table. You know what I'm talking about? And the imagery of this verse just reminded me of that. As if, as if there's a cosmic workshop in the heavens. And we know this is all supposed to be, this is a um, describing God in human terms. It's, it's not actually like this, but it's a way to understand God's magnificence. And it's like God has this little table scale. My grandmother used to have up on her uh, kitchen display, there was this scale, you know, an old-fashioned scale with the, the column in the middle and the two arms. And, and I always think of 
that, I always think of that, um, that scale, and it says here that it's as if God could take the mountains of the earth, he could take the mountains of the earth, and he could weigh them on that little scale. And the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge? And showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as, what's it say? Nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or to what likeness will ye compare him? Skip down to verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. His plan is perfect. He is magnificent in His holiness. It's an interesting point to ponder as we sit here this morning. And realize that he observes all that we do in a worship gathering like this. And just to think that we have not come for ourselves. We've not come for each other. Though there is benefit that we receive, there's benefit that we give to each other. But ultimately, we come into the presence of a magnificent God. And as we hear his word, we open his eternal and perfect word. So I'd encourage you, you know, to never, never regard the worship or the ministry of the word as something casual or as something light. But we come before a holy and magnificent God. That doesn't mean that some people mistake reverence with joylessness. He wants us to come before him with singing and with exclamation. So long as it's directed toward him. So, secondly, not only does Paul notice here the, our magnificent God, but he points and reminds us of our human inadequacy. You remember we moved from exclamation to question marks. We moved to question marks here. And that is this, question mark, verse number 34. The first question is this, who hath known the mind of the Lord? 
For who hath known the mind of the Lord? And as I thought about these three questions, I thought about this. Don't we sometimes, don't we sometimes take the form of one or assume the behavior of one who starts to question God at some times in our lives? Instead of just stopping sometimes in, in, in reverence and obedience, sometimes there's a question. And you'll, you'll find this, when any time, any time a man or a woman questions God, God responds himself with a question. Whenever someone, Jesus would do that, the Pharisees would come and they would say, well, well, well for example, he said, what good thing should I do to inherit the kingdom of God, one of the people said. One of the young men said, and the man looked at him and he said, well, why do you call me good? Jesus was, was known for answering the question with a question. And I see that here in this verse. And before we can even ask the questions, before we can ask the questions, we're presented with a question. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? It's almost as if at times you and I, as people, may question the wisdom of God. You say, I don't think we would ever do that. Well, that is exactly what was done in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? When the devil came, when, when the serpent came to Eve and said, well, what did God really say? Did God really say that? Why did God say that? Well, God knew that if you ate of the fruit that you would be wise like he is. And so we, in our limited, inadequate intellect, we sometimes question the wisdom of God. And sometimes we think, well, God, I would, have, I would have done this differently. And Paul says, before we even ask the question, before you're tempted to question God's plan in your life, he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? The prophet would say for, uh, that God would reveal through the prophets, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. Not only does it say who has known the mind of the Lord, but he says who or who hath been his counselor. Who has been his counselor? Sometimes we question his wisdom. Sometimes we question his direction. It's interesting that, that we are the ones... We are the ones that struggle. We are the ones that, that make poor decisions at times. We stumble in the darkness. And yet then we, we are the first to sometimes say, well, God, I'm just not so sure that this is how you should have dealt in my life. We question his direction. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? And then sometimes we even question his goodness. Look at the look at verse number 35. Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? Do you understand the verse there? It's a question of debt. In other words, what is it that you have given God that you feel he now owes you back? Or is it the other way around? Now, this is an interesting one. I think we should pause on this for just a minute because I've observed a danger in the lives of very faithful Christians sometimes. And I've seen Christian people at times say, well, 
God, I have made sacrifices for you. I've given money. I've faithfully attended church. I've served you. I've given you my time. And then only for some difficulty to come into their life for a person to then say, God, this is what I get in return for the way I've lived for you? That is a danger that can creep in with a from like a self-righteous kind of Christianity. Listen, we're going to see in chapter 12, verse number 1, Brother, brothers, I beseech you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Sometimes we feel that we, we understand that we're saved by grace, but then we start to think that, well, I've kind of done some things to kind of pay God back for that. Wow. That would be a complete misunderstanding of all that God has given us. I always come back to Job. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. Who hath first given to him? There's nothing, that there, that God is not indebted to us at all, but he has given us out of his storehouse so graciously and so freely. And I mentioned it before, but these words, they, they so, they resound so well with God's conversation to Job. Let me read for you from Job 38, and really you could read a lot more than this, but let me just give you this. Job actually got to a place in his life where he began questioning God. Job was questioning God about the things that happened to him. In verse 1 of chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? That was a scary voice for Job to hear. Who is it? And who are you? God knew who he was, but you see the questions. Verse number three, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He says, Job, where were you when I created all that is? Verse 8, or who shut up the sea with doors when it brake forth? as if it had issued out of the womb. He says, Job, can you tell me why the ocean stops where it does? When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and I break, and break it up from my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, hitherto thou shalt come, but no further. Ocean, you stop right there. And here thy proud waves be stayed. Job, have you commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know his place? What he's saying in verse 12 is, Job, are you the one that can make the sun rise in the morning? That it may take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned as clay to the seal, they stand as a garment, and from the wicked their light is withholden. 
The high arm shall be broken. Verse 16. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Or hast thou walked in the search of the depth? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare if thou knowest it all. He says, Job, declare. Where is thy way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof, that thou shouldest take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldest know the paths to the house thereof? Knowest thou it, because thou wast then born, or because the number of thy days is great? Paul echoes these words from the Old Testament when he says, Who are we? Our God is magnificent, and we are inadequate. But then finally, he says this. In verse 36, he reminds us of our place. As inadequate as we can be, and as, as adequate as we are, and as magnificent as he is, we finish understanding our place in his plan. And If you want a great purpose for your life, if you want a great purpose, if you want a great mission statement, verse number 36 pretty much sums it up. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. The good that comes gets offered back to him. The bad that comes gets offered back to him. Of him, all things come from his hand. I think of two words with the of him. I think first of all of thankfulness. That as I look around at the blessings in my life, I need to remember that all of this came from him. It's of him. But not only do I think of the word thankfulness, but I think of the word surrender. Because the thankfulness, though I'm forgetful to do that, is a little bit easier. Say, yes, all these things came from you. But then the surrender to those negative things, to, those, to the bad that can come into my life, the difficulty that comes into my life, the trial that comes into my life, that while we do not believe that God is the author of evil, there is not an evil thing that comes into our life that God does not allow. As if it passes through his hand. And says, yes, I will allow that. And it comes into our lives. The good and the bad. Job would say, do we not receive good at the hand of the Lord? Should we not also receive evil? And that word evil is, is a, the word doesn't mean sinfulness, it means like calamity, difficulty. He says, we receive good from God, do we not also receive the trials that come? And in this verse, Paul's, and Paul, faced, Paul experienced a little bit of each. Actually, he experienced a whole lot of each. A lot of joy and a lot of sorrow. And he said, God, it's all from your hand. I, re I recognize that. I'm thankful and I'm also surrendered. He would write 
Elsewhere, in everything, in all things, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Of him and then, but it's not just of him. It doesn't just come from him. It is through him. That means that all things are accomplished by his what? By his power. By his power. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's not, we see that on the, we see that like, you know, on the, at the sporting event or on the t-shirt at the, and the, you know, I can do all things. I'm going to kick this football really far. I'm going to, I'm going to throw that baseball. I'm going to hit that home run. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The context is not about, you know, how we can do cool stuff with God. That's kind of like how it's been passed down in youth groups over the years, right? I can do all things through Christ. It's about facing the real situations that come into our lives. The good and the bad and what God, how God has called us to walk and live. All things of him and through him that his power is going to enable us. His power is going to accomplish in our lives. For of him and through him and then finally to him. To him. All things come from him. They are accomplished by his power, and all things will fulfill his purpose. That we are created for the glory of God. That means that as I raise my family, my children were given to me for the glory of God. It means that the, the, the job where I work and serve is to be given back to God for his glory. It means my recreation. In fact, Paul would put it this way. Whatever you do, whether, he says even the most basic things, whether you eat or drink, do it how? All to the glory of God. And I think we ought to have times in our lives where we have some prayer and we remind him, God, that we understand this. We say, Lord, yes. Of him, through him, and to him. To whom be glory forever. Amen. I was created for the glory of God. I've, if you are in my office at home, I've got a picture album. That's, I don't know, it's getting pretty old now. But on the cover, on the cover of that album is a picture of Deborah and I when we were 20 years old. And next to it, Deborah made this for me a long time ago when we were dating. Picture of all of our first year or two getting to know each other. But on the very front, of that picture album is a scripture verse and it's this scripture verse for of him and through him and to him are all things now, i haven't always lived up to that but i remember from the very be that verse was meaningful to us because from the beginning of our relationship we said god our relationship exists to be of you and through you and to you 
But that then needs to follow through to all the parts of our lives. Our families. If you, if you, in your marriage, if you are struggling in your marriage, you need to just remind yourself that this marriage serves a greater purpose than my individual happiness. It's for the glory of God. When trials come into your life, this life, my testimony, my obedience to God, even through the difficulty, it serves a greater purpose than how I feel in the moment. Because it's of Him, through Him, and to Him, to whom be glory forever. Amen. One day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all of the parts of our life will be laid out there. And only those things that were done for His glory will have any eternal significance. But not only, it's not only that only those things, but everything. Everything as insignificant as it may have seemed, as small as it might have been, if it was done for His glory, will shine for all of eternity. The greatest sermon in the world, if it was delivered for the glory of the messenger, will burn up. But the simplest task in the church, vacuuming the room, if it was done for the glory of God, will shine for all of eternity. Only what's done for Christ will last, but everything that's done for Christ will last. So as we finish this morning, let's just evaluate our lives, evaluate our motives, could you say, as, you, as we come to the end of this passage, could, thinking about the magnificence of God and who He is, could you say, yes, I'm confident I am living of Him, through Him, to Him, for His glory? Or is this an opportunity this morning for you to course correct, for you to recommit that to the Lord? Could you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? Heads bowed and eyes closed. The most, the most important relationship in all of our lives is our relationship with God, with Christ. And if you have never received Christ as your Savior, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can do that today. Wherever you are, simply say, Jesus, I do believe that you died for me and rose again, and I put my faith and trust in you and you alone. If you've never begun your relationship with Christ, I want to invite you to do that this morning. And from there, those of us who have received Jesus Christ, can you say right now, yes, my life, my family, my job, my emphasis, it's of Him, it's through Him, it's to Him. Or should we all just take a moment as the instruments play and just rededicate, repurpose ourselves to the glory of God this morning. Let's all just pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the salvation that you've given us through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'd bless this uh, time of reflection, this time of prayer now, Lord, and as we sing this song to you, in Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, 
If you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.